Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Money, it's not just about saving. There's also emotional things. Divorce happens, it happened to me. I mean, there's so many complicating factors, parents and inheritance and taxes. Everyone's personal finance. The one thing I always say is it is truly personal. Lauren Young, Reuters Wealth Editor on saving, investing, shutdowns, and the overall meaning of financial life. Hours for the hour. Do stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by Evo Advisors, helping busy professionals who have more than a 401k plan to worry about. Evo Advisors, offering clients financial advice, fiduciaries for families at evoadvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, a proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining me from NPR New York, my esteemed guest, Lauren Young, the wealth editor at Reuters. She's celebrating two decades in financial journalism. Lauren and I worked together at Business Week and at the dearly departed late great Smart Money, the magazine of the Wall Street Journal. How are you, madame? I am good, Robin Farzad. How are you? I love having you on as I've introduced you to the world. You are my big sister of investing. You paved much of the way for me in in financial journalism. We worked together. We sat next to each other. We interviewed a lot of the same people, co-byline stories. And um, I, I am so touched that you would still come on my show even after you have 3 trillion Twitter followers. Oh, well, you know, Robin, for you, for family, I'll do anything. Oh, shucks. You're, if I'm, I was also at Robin's wedding. He didn't tell you that. And his mother is an incredible cook. Thank you. That, so that would not make you a big macher. Would you be a macherite? Macaronum? I don't know. Macarena? We always digress. Uh, talk to me about your current iteration, where you are now at Reuters, and covering wealth as you are in wealth management and the industry in this kind of this post Great recession, post-active management world. Clearly, you and I have talked quite a bit about the huge revolution in ETFs and in indexing. We'll get to Jack Bogle, the dearly departed Jack Bogle, later on. But what is it like now in this world? Well, there's a lot out there, but I don't think a lot of it's very good in terms of personal finance coverage. And the landscape has been decimated in a lot of ways. There was so much good stuff about 10 years ago being written, and I think that people were listening. But now... The quality of personal finance journalism and the the information that's out there, I I hate to say, it just seems like at a lower level, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not that enthusiastic about uh, the advice that people are getting. I mean, you just saw it with the government shutdown, Robin, um, eight hundred thousand federal workers who didn't get a paycheck, and the number of people who had to go seek out, you know, food stamps or um, go to food banks. And set up GoFundMe sites, which we know we're, we're not kosher. Um, it's just it's very alarming that people aren't saving, even though we've been telling them forever you got to save for a rainy day, you've got to have an emergency fund. It's just it didn't happen, and it's really scary. Well, frankly. it points to I think the central paradox of uh, the Great Recession for me is it finally was a humbling for everybody. I mean, you saw I think there was a Fortune magazine. Uh, headline that said the Great Reset or this would be the end of the standard of living bubble. But and yet, you know, we had overextended ourselves. Uh, the Fed had to come in and bail out the system and throw trillions of dollars at it. But 
instead of saving more, I think we were induced to spend more because consumption is such a big part of this economy that the Federal Reserve and the banks wanted us out taking new mortgages, wanted us expanding credit. Uh, the consumer had to come back because it was two-thirds of the economy. And net-net, you know, 10 years after the market's bottom, I see a market watch stat that says 25% of families making $150,000 a year or more are living paycheck to paycheck. That blows the mind. Yeah, and you know, I think that that aspect of and I don't blame people. Let me just say that I don't because we are enticed in so many ways to spend, and it's you know it's it's really hard. But I wonder while I'm sitting here talking to you, Robin, I'm wondering like the Marie Kondo effect of this woman, this cute Japanese woman who's come and told everybody to start tidying up their lives, to only have thirty books, to throw out their stuff, to fold things a different way. I wonder if there is going to be some link with saving and with the mindset of of having less and saving more? Because if you're spending less and having less, where is that money going? It's just a thought. I have no idea. I've never spoke to the woman, but I w- you should interview her and find out. I'm quoting Steve Adcock in Market Watch um, in his story on, on high-income earners and, and the paucity of savings. He cites a Nielsen study in that 25% of families making $150,000 a year or more are living paycheck to paycheck. One in three earning between $50,000 and $100,000 need their paycheck to survive, their next paycheck. For those earning less than $50,000, that percentage increases to half. And then he writes, that's not a big difference, folks. No, um, it, it, I mean, all of it is, you know, most people don't have more than $1,000. They don't, they don't have $300 that they can just tap if there's an emergency, if they have to fix a tire or something. So and $300, that's you know, nothing. And not nothing, but it's not – it doesn't take a lot to save that, I think. Um, it's just we really do, as you mentioned, live in a culture of consumption and spending, and there's not a lot of incentives. And interestingly enough, and we, we recently wrote a story about this, but it, there's been other stuff out there. Prudential, the big insurance company, has been working with companies. They do benefits, retirement plans and stuff, but they've been working with companies to help them – create emergency savings accounts for workers, which I think is really interesting, the same way that 401k works. So it's automatic. It comes out of your paycheck. It goes into an account and you have access to it because what we're finding is is that in times like this, and you read it story after story in the government shutdown coverage, that people were thinking about rating their retirement accounts. And A, it's bad because it's bad for just retirement savings in general, but there's also penalties and fees that you have to pay if you do do that. So it, it hurts you both ways. Think about how Orwellian or redundant that sounds, emergency savings account. And I don't mean to wax elitist with this, but savings should just be savings. I mean, I was, you know, if the little kid's asking his parents, if you're afraid of losing your job, could you buy job insurance? Well, job insurance is supposed to be savings, right? You're supposed to garnish your own wages. You're supposed to husband some money, put it aside for a rainy day scenario. A lot of people got walloped by this when millions and millions in, in, in the course of you know 10 months lost their jobs in the worst of the Great Recession. And they had to make mortgage payments. They had to make car payments. They had to prevent default. It seems like this is basic personal finance 101 that's kind of, you know, elude, it's elusive for everybody. One of the fascinating things that came out of the Great Recession, too, and I did, it took a lot to, to kind of think about this, but it makes perfect sense, is that people would not, as we know, pay their mortgages, but they would pay their car payment because your car, you need your car to get somewhere. You need your car to get to work. And your house, you know, it's going to be a lot harder for them to take it out from under you, which we saw, you know, did happen 
in terms of foreclosures, but it takes a long time. It's just fascinating kind of the thought process of where your priorities are in terms of how you're paying for things. But I do agree with you, Robin. You know, emergency savings, it it sounds Orwellian and redundant, and I don't like it either. But I just – I like – to think of it as like buckets of money <laughs> that you can tap at different in different places in different ways. Because and I don't blame people either because truth be told, cash has been you're getting nothing on it. So why would you keep your money in cash? Granted, we're not talking about people that were necessarily investing at the same time, and but it's there hasn't been a lot of incentive to put money in cash either. Let's just anything, be there's honest. been a, there's been a disincentive. You've seen in the Scandinavian economies and many of the European economies, there are negative interest rates. Here in the United States, we've had zero yielding cash and and savings accounts for the longest time. But you talk to someone or the people at Ritholtz Wealth Management or Josh Brown and they or, or Jason Zweig, and they tell you that cash is vindicated for those who have that money for a true rainy day scenario, like a March of two thousand nine, where you could buy stocks at you know fifty percent off, where you know, you can you can afford to not lose your house or lose your car. Uh, it seems that people forget that things can and do fall apart. But this is such a micromanaged economy by the Federal Reserve and the banking system that we we don't really have true collapses all that often to remind people. You're absolutely right. But then those true collapses come, and we say the sky is falling. The sky is falling. And then people, you know, they pull out their umbrellas and and they shield themselves for five minutes, and then they forget. Lauren, you talk about the paucity of good, you know, personal finance coverage. Obviously, a lot of the the sector has been eviscerated. We were no strangers to the layoffs at Business Week, uh, Smart Money, the the magazine of the Wall Street Journal, where you and I met at the turn of the century. I always like to say that, you know, in two thousand when I first met you, uh, that has disappeared. That was sold by Hearst to the the Wall Street Journal. I mean, to Rupert Murdoch, who then kind of folded it into Market Watch or other things. Uh, Money Magazine. I don't I don't know what the use is. Occasionally, when I see it in a dentist's office. It doesn't have the applicability to me that it did say in 98 or 99 when I'd pick it up at the beginning of the year and look at the best funds for the next year. Uh, Fortune was just sold and flipped to somebody else. I don't know if Kips or Worth is is out there. Uh, Yahoo Finance might be in play again. But in defense of all that happening, one, it's a secular thing and that journalism keeps dying, as we're reminded you know, with all the layoffs. But Two, what do I need to know in the way of advice? To me, it's set it and forget it. I don't follow individual stocks anymore. I'm very happy in my Vanguard portfolio owning the world, you know, in a in a uh, um, efficient capital uh, frontier kind of, you know, wonky MBA 101 thing. I don't care what Cisco's earnings are going to be like or what Apple's going to be like. I know that I need to have a portion of my income in savings. I know that I have to have some directed to my children's education account. So what what else, how much handholding does the world need from us? Well, I think people need handholding in, in, in terms of having somebody they can trust because the inertia is really the worst thing for, for anyone. And, and it's so prevalent. And, you know, we there's things we're supposed to be doing with this. We're supposed to be saving for a rainy day. We're supposed to be saving for college. But it's really hard to get yourself started and I think that's where – and I think the advice industry, unfortunately, has not made it easy. And when I say advice industry, I talk about you know the, the wealth management landscape. And yes, there are robo-advisors that will 
for a lower cost, put you in things, but it's still not super cheap or you could argue that it is, but it's just hard to find somebody that you can trust to give you good advice who isn't conflicted and can really be your partner in terms of all of the things. Because money, it's not just about saving. There's also emotional things. Divorce happens. It happened to me. I mean, there's so many complicating factors, parents and inheritance and taxes. And um, everyone's personal finance, the one thing I always say is it is truly personal. There's not an all-in-one solution for everyone. Kudos to you. I love Vanguard, too. And uh, I have a significant chunk of my money and set-it-forget-it type of investments. But there's just other things that I have to save for and other things I have to think priorities and saving for college and, as I mentioned, divorce, you know, all these things. It's There's... You need somebody to help you is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, I, I, one thing I love about being a personal finance journalist is there is – if I help one person, then, then my job is done. I've done, I've done a good job. Um, so if you're listening to this and I've helped you, please let me know. But I think that it's hard. There's just not enough people out there in the way that there aren't enough um, – trying to think of like a, a good analogy of good, you know, emergency room doctors in, in rural America. They're just, it's, there's just not enough of them. So uh, it's hard to find a financial advisor and not get, I don't want to say fleece, but just not for it to be too expensive for you. I remember when you and I were at Smart Money. This is a memory going back now, I think 17, 18 years, and we're in New York. And our editor, Pete Finch, back then had an incentive system. If you do four or five TV appearances a month, you get paid per TV appearance. And it was actually you know, pretty lucrative. So you're really hungry by the 28th of the month if the WB network or UPC or one of these local um, TV stations starts Absolutely. calling and having you do like this desperate personal financing. And I just remember I was on once. It was like, you know, the 10 things your Valentine won't tell you on Valentine's Day about personal finance planning. I was like, okay, I'll just play it straight and everything. And I'm in the green room. And then the anchor turns to me. He's like, I'm going to ask you straight, Robin Farzad, should I or should I not put my husband's credit card in the freezer when he overspends? And I was like, oh, well, you know, there are other methods of kind of budgeting and using this. But no, no, no. Talk to me about the freezer. I heard it's a new method. You could literally freeze. And they're like, I did not know that. No, you could literally freeze your husband's credit. And I, I'm, just, I'm just going back and thinking about the various different questionable channels that people take in terms of advice and, and, and personal financial living. Yeah, but you know what? I don't actually think that the credit card is such a bad thing for some people because it really it takes a while to thaw, thaw out, although I guess you could get a hair dryer or you put it in the microwave. But I don't know what And then she warned me, she warned me not to denigrate tilapia because it was her favorite fish. And I told her a lot of restaurants might sell you tilapia, but it'll actually be, you know, um, St. Peter's fish or something. No, 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 don't mess with tilapia. And then I just look at the screen. I was like, what am I doing with my career, mom? Sorry, I didn't go to med school. But anyway, continue. Totally digressing, but Robin is also obsessed with Patagonian is it toothfish? <laughs> yes. Go on. Continue. We're getting right. way into inside baseball. Anyway, okay. Right. Money. Let's get back to the whole topic of money and personal finance and and finding good people. There's. It's just. I, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I have to say of like financial literacy is just one of those topics that you throw out there and you just want to barf. But people don't learn at a young age, which is really important. I actually think all these apps that are out there now are helping kids. Like my son, I have a 13-year-old son, and we use the current app. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's it's just one of these apps where I can track his spending. Like I saw he bought lunch at Subway today, and uh, he I clearly stopped in a key food because that's our local supermarket, um, and he bought something there. I don't know what he had for breakfast, but I'm seeing his spending in real time, which is pretty cool. 
and I can transfer money from my bank account into his account so he gets his allowance, you know, automatically. And he's got a debit card. So he's learning responsible spending. He's learning a little bit about budgeting. He's 14 years old. And um, no one, you know, necessarily – I had a consumer ed class in high school that taught us how to balance a checkbook. I have to admit to you I have not balanced my checkbook in forever because why would you when you can just look at everything um, on on the app in real time? But, um, you know, just giving you a sense of, of spending and budgeting and it's just not, it's just not taught, Robin. Did it, who taught you about money? You did. No, actually, I took a job uh, in the brokerage industry right after college, and I learned the hard way that there's so many inchoate conflicts of interest. I mean, before that, you know, my dad liked to say I could put some of your bar mitzvah money in Chrysler or Coke, and I started watching CNBC, and I had it in my dorm room in college, and you had to duck back then to not get a job on Wall Street. So I kind of learned it by accident, but I, I fell on my face several times as a self-directed investor until I met you and we found, we found the right way, the righteous way. That's right, righteous. Um, I actually think it's important to fail. Ron, Ron Lieber, who wrote a book, uh, he's the Wall Street Journal personal finance con- columnist, and if he ends up ever hearing this, I always give him a shout out, but I truly believe it. I think he does amazing work. And Ron wrote a book called The Opposite of Spoiled, and, and he talks about why it's really important, A, to teach your kids about money, but also to let them fail. It's really important to fail because without failure, you don't know what success looks like. And um, so if a kid makes a mistake financially, hopefully they will learn from it. If it just means spending their, you know, allowance at the movies and buying popcorn for everybody else and then not having any money for the rest of the week, well, that's a good lesson to learn. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Lauren Young, wealth editor at Reuters, veteran financial journalist, now celebrating two decades in in, in personal finance uh, in New York. I do have a question for you to the extent that we are approaching that generational market low of March 9th, 2009. People have asked me uh, when they were throwing new normal around back then in PIMCO and Muhammad Alarian, and and it was in, in, you know, if you do a Google search of how many times that was invoked in the financial crisis and the Wall Street meltdown, um, after everything rallied, you know, five years following that, I still get the question, and I, I like to pose it as a Rorschach to some guests, when was it ever normal? When was it truly normal? When have we had a situation where stocks weren't overpriced or wildly underpriced? We didn't have the Fed at emergency rates or emergency stimulus or um, emergency very high rates to choke off inflation or an exogenous shock or a missile crisis. Have we ever had a baseline year of normalcy in the U.S. economy in your memory? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, go back. You can start with tulips or you can you know, t- start with um, coins or whatever it is. No. And go back to other... I haven't studied monetary policy in ancient Rome, but I think that there's always something that's going to be overpriced and underpriced. So there's never unless unless you recognize that that's the new normal, then um, no, I don't think that there's ever been a time. Do you think there's ever been a time in U.S. history? Where- it's interesting the answer you get from people. And one of my most influential professors was uh, Mr. Lutness in high school. He he taught me my first economics class, and when he came to visit me. You know, he and his wife had retired. They'd gone up in an RV up the coast, and they stopped in Virginia. And I said, "When? what is normal? He goes, normal for you is the week you graduate from college. And you have, you know your debt balance. You know how the economy is. You know what the job market is. To that extent, the people who had the misfortune of graduating in the autumn 
of 2008, their normalcy is necessarily, you know, PTSD. They're going to be very careful about spending. They're mindful of having to live with their parents in their 20s. And everybody will always carry that normalcy with them. For me, I graduated in 1998. I went straight into the brokerage industry, took my Series 7. Russia starts collapsing. You have LTCM, that collapse. The, the emergency Alan Greenspan interest rates, and then the internet bubble swells massively in 99. So that will always be my... Those were such good times. You know, though, that my internet, branding. That swelling internet bubble was so much fun. And I, so, mi- I do miss that. I mean, that wasn't new normal, but that was kind of like the old awesome. Oh, but then the collapse of it and everything that quickly fell apart in our industry now that's been in a kind of a throes of a 20-year decline. But I, I do pose that question to you, and I'm sure you are asked at cocktail parties, when when was it last normal? Yeah, and I agree with you. I don't think I personally don't think it was ever normal. So I did, there's always there's always something. Um, if it's not one thing, it's another. There's always something that, and that's what makes it interesting too. And I, honestly, I think I don't like normal. I like weird. You know, I when we came to the United States in the late '70s from Iran in the early '80s, we were used to being able to go to the bank and get a. a you know, at a savings loan or a CD or a savings account in the teens. And they'd give you a toaster or a blender or something like that. And that's just not something you'd see today. And my parents still lament it. They say, how is it that you're not paid for savings in your country? And I, I try to turn around and say, well, the you know, the banking system is intensely micromanaged by the Federal Reserve now in interest rates. It's like, you know, water level management at the at the Tennessee Valley Authority or the Hoover Dam. And they say, do you think it's normal that Interest rates have been around two, two and a half percent, and they were close to zero for the longest time right now. Do you think that's fair to us and other people who want to save money? No, it's not fair, but nothing is fair in life. Uh, life is just not fair. But maybe there was another investment that they could have done really well on. Um, interest rates, are, it's it's fascinating to me because I've been saying for so long that interest rates are going up, they're going up, they're going up. And they, yes, they crept up a little baby bit, but they really haven't gone up that much. You know, relatively, they're still near historical lows. We're in the process of buying a, a home, but we can't get a mortgage yet because it's um, new construction. So you can't get it until you have a certificate of occupancy. And my husband is just, he, every day he tells me if rates went up, they went down. And I, you know, just, you just got to chill. It's, there's nothing we can do about it. So, but it, well, you could get a rate lock, but it's expensive, and I don't, I'm not doing that. Um, I don't know. Do you? I uh, the the. I think there's a deeper issue just in terms of the Federal Reserve and their interplay with the economy and their interplay with with rates. But it's not just about interest rates. That's not the story. The story is a much bigger one of the U.S. economy and what it looks like right now. And I, I have to say, I mean, I think things were going swimmingly, and it looked like. 2019 was probably poised to be a pretty good year because we are in term. It's a very, very tight labor market, as you know, and there are more jobs out there than than bodies to fill them. But I, I am worried, Robin, frankly, about the shutdown. I think it's going to have an impact on, on first quarter growth. And I think it's changed people's perceptions about being able to get things done. And um, how do you feel about it? Does it worry you at all? You know, I think about it, and I, I see we have a, a, a contractor friend here who um, I think works with the SEC and other departments uh, on a contractor level who's never going to be made hold for, for the three weeks that he missed out of, of income. I mean, it's not like they're going to go back and say, okay, we're going to make this good again in the three-week grace period. He's a contractor. He gets lost in the mix. There are various I can't janitors. believe that the number of people that are in that situation. But I think the, so fallacy, the fallacy is, is so many people think that this is kind of limited to, okay, national parks, national monuments, and the beltway. 
it's not my problem. But I'm curious to see what the ultimate ripple is when we get full quarterly and half year numbers that come out. I was in DC a couple of weeks ago to do C-SPAN and um, you know, stayed overnight and everything. And, and it just felt like a ghost town, the Beltway. <laughs> there were fewer people on the Beltway. Maybe it needs that every now and then, but it's not. It's certainly not fair. And if it's something that keeps happening, frankly, I was surprised that more people weren't up in arms about it, that you know, you guys are playing this game of chicken and holding up my livelihood. And it speaks to what you initially brought up, that very few people have enough savings to tide them over even for a week. And I, I think you know this already, but the tax implications of the IRS being shuttered basically for three weeks are are pretty big because there's all of this guidance from the Tax um, Act that is from last year that are that is coming out and people have to digest it and understand it. And, and like all of these kids were literally their financial aid was being held up because they didn't have the right forms from the IRS. And just there's so many it's, – it's all so connected and complicated. And when you shut down the government for three weeks, it really messes things up. Lauren Young, I have another one to throw at you, and I read about this in Business Insider by way of uh, information from the UK's Office for National Statistics and the San Francisco Fed. Uh, unemployment Ooh, all is, those people. Right. Unemployment is indeed at record lows both in the United States and the UK, but, quote, involuntary part-time work is at least 40 percent higher in both countries than it was a decade ago. The structure of the labor market has fundamentally changed, and what we used to think of as, quote, unemployment has been replaced by mass part-time work, much of it unwanted. Gig economy jobs are to blame, according to Rob Valletta of the San Francisco Fed. I'm sure you hear a lot about this. What do you think? So, yes and no. I mean, during the shutdown, there was a good story in the New York Times about a woman who was driving an Uber driver. I believe it was in Milwaukee or Minneapolis, one of the M cities in the Midwest. And, you know, she wasn't getting much business, but her car was an asset and she wanted to use it to see if she could be making some extra money while she wasn't being paid. Um, so I love the idea of people having a side hustle. I love the idea of people being able to figure out um, extra streams of money. But truth be told, you know, it's very hard to find that right that right gig. And um, it is worrisome because there are tax implications that people don't really understand when you have a, a job like that because you're not putting money away for taxes and then you get hit with a huge tax bill and all of the depreciation and things from whatever assets you're using to do your job. So, you know, I, I don't disagree that it's worrisome. I agree. I agree that it's worrisome to put it in the positive spin. But I, there's still something in me that likes the idea of people, and particularly in America, which is so entrepreneurial and, you know, a lot of cool businesses have been started as a side hustle. So we would never want to, I wouldn't want to quell that. But um, granted, though, you do have to take this four percent unemployment rate, and we're taught about the natural natural rate of unemployment and um, people dropping out of the workforce. You have to take it with a huge asterisk or a grain of kosher salt. If there are hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people, who really would like for the employer to put a ring on them and give them benefits and a four hundred one k and some security, but they're only being strung along as permatemps. I think that's that's structurally that's problematic. Some people want that though. That's the thing. So should you not allow people? Because some people don't want to be tethered to one employer, and they feel that if they spread spread their eggs out or whatever it is across different. Um, fields or whatever agricultural reference you want to make there. Um, it was a bad analogy. But anyway, some people don't want to be tethered to a company. But fundamentally, Robin, um, I know someone who was recently laid off. She's in her, her late 50s. 
And like, where is the health insurance going to be for her for the next, was it eight years until she, until med, seven years until Medicare kicks in? Um, so I just, I, more than anything, like benefits wise, and I know this is what the whole like premise of Bob, Obamacare was supposed to be, but I do worry because health care is such a huge suck. Even I worry more about health care than I do about retirement savings. I think people can figure out that. Um, but health care, if you have an emergency or anything, we know that people spend more money on health care in the last year or years of their life than they do in all the other years combined. Well, to that end, talk to me about health care. We see Kamala Harris, who is effectively de- declared for president in the 2020 election, coming out and saying that Medicare for all does sound like a good idea. That would have been taboo and exotic just six or seven years ago. Do you remember in the debate over Obamacare, um, the boogeymanning over what was called the public option? Could you could you imagine that the public option was something that you could invoke on TV and make people be scared. That, oh, you know, there are going to be death panels that come around and decide the public option is going to force it down. And on the down. flip side, Robin, let's, what, what, let's just throw it out there. And what do you think about mandatory retirement at 70? I mean, you know, so they go hand in hand, right? Are people, if people can and are able to work longer, then theoretically they could have health care coverage. No, but, but seize on this concept of health care because it is the lament. And look, I've now been a forced entrepreneur ever since I got off the grid and everything and moved and did this on my own. I know what COBRA costs. I know about the bad options that we have through the exchanges and everything else. And I, I interface with other entrepreneurs. And this might sound obvious to people out there, but it is the biggest lament out there. That I know. That's why we, I said it. But we still have this vestige of, of you know, you are tethered to health care by dint of how good your employer is. And there'd be much more job mobility and less friction and people being able to ultimately be more productive and happy in the workforce if uh, healthcare broadly was untethered from the job experience. And I'm not even talking about a public option necessarily, but why is it that I can only get into certain healthcare plans if I'm a member of an enormous corporation? And it shouldn't be that way because it's all about, uh, as you know, big companies have group rates and they spread out their risks among a large population. So why can't we That's fine. And you, when you were union steward at Dow Jones, I remember you'd fight every year when they'd come back and nickel and dime us more for out-of-pocket visits. We didn't pay for healthcare when we started our job. It was like automatically part of, of our benefits package. Can you imagine that? Right. But then it crept up back on you. And it happened to us at Bloomberg. They gave us a a great Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. You didn't pay a penny for it until the cost became so big that they started saying, well, if you want to keep it, you have to submit to a blood test. You have to have the nutritionist come visit you. You have to promise to be on a plan. And then they incented good behavior with it. My point to you is that even when we were part of a huge sprawling corporation, it didn't ultimately give us leverage. We were lamenting every year in the union meetings that we are just paying ever more for ever less. Right. And they, I mean, you know, that healthcare and as well as educational costs, I'll just throw in there, always outplace, outpace the price of inflation. So unfortunately, and so then now you turn back and say, well, the industry is, is flawed because have you visited an emergency room lately? Do you know how much money it costs? Do you know anesthesia and why it's not covered most of the time and people get socked with this unexpected bill? I mean, the, that system, the, the healthcare system itself and the way we deliver healthcare in America is broken. So, and that is why it is so, so incredibly expensive. I'm not, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying, you know, so there's supply and demand. The supply while we do have the, I would say, the best healthcare in the world, I don't know if you agree with that, the supply is good, what's out there, but it's also very, very costly for a bunch of different reasons. And we know that the, the demand is you know, more than more than we can deliver. And you see it underscored a lot is that the outcomes we pay for the, the huge uh, 
overbalance that we pay versus countries like Israel and um, you know Japan and others. We get poorer outcomes for the dollars that we pound out. Absolutely. So I don't understand something, and I don't I, I don't know if you ever think about it, but in the subscription economy, with the explosion of things like Amazon Prime. Why isn't that something that you, you saw that when Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan and I think Jeff Bezos, they put their heads together? Why can't that legion of, of subscribers Amazon. and an interesting pool come out and they've disrupted so many other things? I wonder why they can't disrupt healthcare costs. And you saw that byline. I don't know who did it a week or two ago that she reported about her $20,000 emergency room stay and she went and wrote a Medium blog post about it. And then the hospital was so embarrassed that they brought it down to $200. And so the the fact that the hospital – it's not just about embarrassment, but there's also – there's many facets to this. But people are, don't understand and they'll just pay instead of, of challenging things. or They don't know what, what mechanisms and what levers to pull to challenge the costs. And yes, there's supposed to be all this cost data out there. It's supposed to be transparent, but it's not. So um, getting back to your question though, like why can't there be th- this disruption, a Google or an Amazon Bezos Buffett thing – I don't – I have to say to you, Robin, I don't know the answer. I mean I would like to think that there are super smart people that are thinking about this all the time. But I don't know them and I haven't talked to them yet. So I think you should bring them onto your show and figure that one out. But it's – because healthcare is so personal, like personal finance in some ways, there's not an all-in-one thing. You can't say to everybody like you're going to take this medication, you're going to walk this many steps a day, and you're going to be healthy. It doesn't work like that. There's chronic illness is, you know, rampant in our country. And people just have – some of them just have really bad genes. You know, they just inherit stuff. Lauren Young, were you just at Davos? I wasn't at Davos this year. And I'm actually glad that I wasn't. I have been. And I have to say it's kind of cool in to, to be hanging out with the world's elite. It's beautiful there and the food is really good. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, but at the end of the day, it also can feel like a lot of talk and, you know, a lot of people thinking about things and talking about things. But – how that leads to effect and action, you know, sometimes it depends on, on the topic and the area. But it is it is a, it is cool, I have to say. And it's, what's interesting about Davos is when you walk around the um, the meeting space, you'll see like Mark Carney from the Bank of England just, you know, chit-chatting with Steve Schwartzman or whoever it is. So there's all these financiers talking with these, you know, uh, government types and then entrepreneurs and, you know, Bono's running around. So, uh, and I guess Matt Damon was in our studio. People were telling us for Reuters um, for our show that we do every morning. So it is, it is, it's kind of cool. And I did, I have done some good source discussions there. And as I said, the food's really good. Also, there are a lot of freebies in Davos. I got a lot of cool uh, winter hats. Looking ahead to the 2020 election and the new star of the Democratic Party, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Surely a lot of people— Do you think this, she's the new star or do you think she's the youngest star? I'm she curious. is the new star. I mean, she's got a separate—you She, you could argue that she's separately a separate speaker of the House for her generation over Twitter. She doesn't have to care about Nancy Pelosi reining her in. I mean, her district is going to be protected. She's a star. She's getting overtures everywhere. She's a Fox News boogeywoman. But the point is, is her plan—and she's come out and, and put this out there—aims uh, to— to soak the rich. I mean, is it a 70% tax for a certain level of income um, that things that would have been taboo just a few years ago are actually part of the progressive platform now? It says the marginal tax rate to 70% on income above $10 million, which would affect only 0.1% of U.S. households. Elizabeth Warren, the other star, has suggested a wealth tax, which would tithe the net worth of the very rich at 2% for assets above $50 million and 3% 
for those with more than $1 billion. Uh, there are estimates, and I'm quoting Wired magazine, that Warren's tax could generate $2.75 trillion in revenue over a decade. And the world has been abuzz about this, especially after the Piketty book came out years ago. That, mm-hmm. um, And I'm sure that people were immediately asking you about it. Is there going to be a scenario with pitchforks in the street, income inequality, wealth distribution is so unequal now that is there going to be kind of a violent snapback? I don't think there'll be a violent snapback and maybe I'm naive or maybe I'm just too old uh, because people there, you know, we, a nation founded on ideas about wealth and about money and entrepreneurship and all of these things have been discussed. And there's been, you know, obviously a, a wide rift between the rich and the poor for a long time. And has it gotten worse? In some ways, yes, but in some ways, no, too. So, um I think that – but I love ideas and I love people talking about things and I think it's great. And it's it's really interesting that the the blue wave, the progressive mantra and all of these ideas and discussions are happening at the same time as we've also had, you know, this really interesting conservative dominance um, with Donald Trump and with, with the people in his administration and people around him. So it's, it's like a fascinating – it's, you know, Robin, at the end of the day, it's like the middle, as always, is just – Blah. There's not a lot of centrist information, thoughts happening, and that's where most of us live, where most people in this country are kind of somewhere in the middle, but there's nobody really able to vocalize uh, and and capture the sentiments of, of the people who are feeling. Hmm. And indeed, you're talking about Trump. The heart of the 2017 tax cut lowered the corporate tax rate to 21 percent from 35 percent. So it was a huge boon. And yet 85 percent of the companies that were surveyed um, this week said that they haven't really made big changes. And the fact that you still see people – I gave that $150,000 statistic earlier that are not able to come up with $1,000 in, in case of emergency or that other stat that went around $400 in case your car breaks or there's a leak in the roof. I mean so many people out there are living paycheck to paycheck and that's not consistent, one, with unemployment at a whatever 40-year low below – you know. 4%, inflation being tame, a stock market being near all-time highs, household wealth being near all-time highs. There's a huge disconnect in that right there. That That's what confounds me. And that's why I, I keep coming back to, I just don't understand. Like something's broken in the supply chain of how we fund our future and how we live our lives. Because it makes absolutely no sense. You said that $150,000 statistic, how can those people not have the money that they need in an emergency is, is, is astounding to me. Lauren Young, wealth editor at Reuters, I'd like to shift the conversation into investing our bailiwick and a conversation about our uh, dearly departed friend Jack Bogle, oh. the, the captain of indexing, one of the pioneers of investing in the, in the 20th century, just passed away. I had profiled him for Business Week. Uh, it was 10 years ago. It was March of 2009. I had the crazy luck of being able to ride uh, an Amtrak with him from Philadelphia to D.C. for him to give a talk about the fiduciary standard. And he turned to me, and I cannot make this up. He goes, you know, you know Robin, what's going on right now? It's, it, it reminds me. The opposite of it was in, in, in 2000 when I went all to bonds. And I'm not a market timer, but, you know, I, I, I think that this is a, just a great time to be all in stocks. Otherwise, you know, if we're all eating cat food, it's all of us eating cat food. But I, I don't think the Fed's going to let that happen. I mean, I, th- this is just really overdone. As you know, the market fell back to 1996 levels by March of 2000. And it turned into a generational buying opportunity. I think it's tripled since then. And that's my big 
memory uh, with this guy who was so soft-spoken as you remember the gimmick was you'd ever, you'd meet with him in New York, and if you wanted to meet at the Princeton Club in Midtown, he'd always make a point of stuffing uh, freebies into a napkin to take with him on his car ride to CNBC. And I was like, you don't need to do that, man. You're a millionaire several times over. But it was the point that that even wealthy people should be thrifty. So thrifty and so eloquent and so charming. And, and I mean, he definitely had his stump speeches. Let's, let's say there were like catchphrases, casino capitalism. And, you know, he just had all of his things that he would say over and over, un-American, because people used to call indexing un-American. And they would say it was un-American. Um, but he was real and he was very on point and on message. And but he, man, was he eloquent. And just and as you know, and you've read and everybody who's listening knows this. And Warren Buffett said it, too. Um, probably nobody did more for the individual investor in, in, in our history than Jack Vogel because he had everybody focus on fees, which no one talked about before he started really – I mean, maybe they talked about it, but he was the rabble rouser. And ha- by having people focused on fees, it drove down costs. And it's, it's not even – Morningstar, I think, tried to put you know a number on it, but it's pretty impossible. Well, let's go, really back and ex- let's go back and explain it for our listeners, the public radio okay. audiences. Go back to the mid-1970s, right? And it – Time was, I even remember when I was investing with my bar mitzvah money in the early 90s, is you had to call a broker. Yep. Um, and, and, things and pay a commission. Though, and pay a commission. And if you were going to buy a mutual fund, you had to wait until 4 o'clock. And there was a high fee structure. A lot of banks would offer these load funds at the front that were really bad underperformers. I remember I bought, my mother was sold the Putnam over-the-counter emerging growth thing, which was a catastrophe. And then it was delisted and it charged. There was a fund called the the Stedman funds. Do you remember that? They used to call it the Deadman funds. Yeah, poor, poor Oprah. But Jack <laughs> Jack came out and he realized in the mid-70s, much to the consternation of Wellington Capital Management and others, that you don't have to do this. There is a way for you in a very low-cost way to own the entire market. Be the market. Don't try to beat the market. And just you know, set it and forget it. If you own everything and you look back at finance, things are going to zig and zag. You're going to keep loss, uh, uh, your costs, which is really the only thing you can control in your allocation, brutally low. And over time, you're hoping that the, the great law of compounding and the market's natural growth will, will benefit you in the end. People forget that your money doubles every 10 years when it compounds at 7.2%. Which uh, is the Einstein theory yeah. the beauty of compounding. And then the market, as we're told, is uh, over the long haul in the 20th century, done around 9.2% a year. And he believed that this was everybody's almost democratic thesis. right. Right. He wrote an investment. He wrote a thesis at while Princeton, he was at Princeton right? um, about it, which I have read and maybe you have too. I'm sure you have. And um, this was his thesis. And people thought he was crazy. Crazy. Well, people even at Vanguard thought that he was sticking around way too long, well into his 80s and badgering Well, they had mandatory retirement and they kicked him into this, his Bogle Research Center. Um, And he, yes, there was a lot of tension between him and some of the other people at the company over, you know, over time. But I'll tell you, when he walked around that campus, and maybe, I don't know if you ever got to have lunch with him on campus, but... And there was a statue. There was a statue before he died, which he was, which was he was kind of uh, embarrassed about because he said they should put that up after I die. But there's a, this beautiful statue of him in the middle of the Vanguard Guard campus in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. But he, when he walked around that, the complex and would eat lunch in the cafeteria, people they revere him, revered and still. Revered and if him. you look at the tone with Jason Zweig and the Ritholtz Wealth people, and you know Ben 
Ben Carlson and everybody, we kind of revered him. He's almost our patron saint. Look, I don't practice. I call him a friend, Robin. Honestly, I mean, you're not supposed to be friends with your sources, but that man was my friend. And we're not and... supposed to practice hagiography, but he's always marshalling out these statistics. I mean, the, the highest performing funds, tricks of the trade, fund of funds. And, and part of you is thinking to yourself, sir, you're a heart transplant recipient. You can barely hold the pen in your hands because your fingers have become so frail. He walked around with... um little Ziploc bags with all his pills and he'd take them out and there would be a bag of pills and there would be, you know, it was huge that he had to take and you'd sit and watch him down them because he had to take stuff for his heart and I don't know what it, what he was taking. But yes, I mean, he it was amazing. I actually, Robin, at Dow Jones covered his heart transplant. I also wrote when Vanguard launched its website. So, you know, I've been around for a while. But um, when he had his heart transplant, I wrote the story for, for Dow Jones and for the Wall Street Journal. And it was scary. He, a, a young man died and Jack got his heart. And he was so thankful and always very cognizant of the fact that he had an extra life or an extra few lives that he shouldn't have had. Um, because he was born with a congenital heart Arguably, arguably one of the most, I mean, not arguably, one of the most successful heart transplant recipients in history. I think the transplant was around 96 when I met him. He came and lectured at Burton Malkiel's corporate finance class. And now he's had that for 23 years and we just lost him. Yeah, he also, I mean, there are so many interesting things about Jack Bogle. We did a story, we do these first job series at Reuters. He was a pin setter. I believe it was somewhere in New Jersey at a bowling alley. That was his first job. He put pins, you know, when somebody bowled a game, he'd run out and set the pins for them. And he said that he realized very quickly that that was manual labor was not for him. And he didn't want to live his life in, in that kind of job. He had higher aspirations. But he was very humbled by the experience of working in this bowling alley. And it's amazing to think that the, the, the exotic-seeming 500 portfolio of Vanguard Index Trust Right, the first index fund. You're talking about uh, the mid 1970s or 1976. It, it, it toted something like uh, 11 million dollars in 1975, and now Vanguard overall has what five trillion dollars? Yes, isn't that amazing? What's amazing to me is I think back to all the people, the fund managers who would come in and have meetings with us, and I think Gus Souter, uh, who was the head of Vanguard for a while, came in when we were at Smart Money Magazine in the early aughts and was talking about the, the ETFs. And they very seamlessly went from this world of index funds and 1-800 numbers, and you can only invest once a day at the end of the day, to the ETF world, which has exploded in parallel, which has truly taken over the investing world. And, and Jack hated ETFs. He hated exchange-traded funds. He you know, called it casino capitalism because the difference between a mutual fund is that that well the portfolio the way it's set and it's fixed you can't, it's much harder to trade a mutual fund inject not like trading ETFs can be trade you know they're traded on exchange they can be traded around the clock but whether or and not and the portfolios whether, are yeah, transparent true whether or not he liked it what he's done is completely obliterated the commission could Jack have ever imagined that Schwab and Fidelity would be like jumping over themselves to bring their costs down to nothing their investing well, costs the down whole, to nothing the whole world of investing changed Robin I mean, you know. There was a time when fund managers were stars. They were like, you know, the Lady Gaga and the and the I don't know who who you want to say, but the Lady Gaga of investing. And now, it, name name five fund managers for me. I bet you can't. I mean, I know you can, but it's hard. They're, they just don't have the reverence, the stock picking mentality, the you know, the big swinging. Of a, of a money manager, it just it doesn't. It's no one cares anymore. And 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 I give Jack Bogle a lot of credit for that. And I don't think it's wrong. I mean, it's still interesting to talk to people. I know you said you don't care so much about individual stocks, but 
I love you know Apple reported earnings. It's interesting to know that whether or not people are buying iPhones or yeah, if they're it's buying nice. them in it's China. It's nice to keep us keep a speck of of bacon on the plate. I know you kind of keep kosher every now and then. I don't mean to <laughs> offend you or your husband. I but happen to love bacon. It's nice, or some people like Jim Cramer call it mad money to keep a little bit in there to keep you excited so you follow the news. But I actually love walking out. And it's the out. How, how the world works. I mean, people buy they buy things they don't buy things, and why why they do or do not buy things. It's interesting to know. Index funds take all that fun out of of the of the conversation. But let me comment just really on the innovation of it. There's one product, for example, at Vanguard, um, and I'm going to really wonk out on this, but you can comment on how this would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. There's one ETF called the Vanguard Total World Stock ETF. It's one ticker, one liquid stock that uh, trades that holds 8,800 stocks around the world across so many different countries, holds North America, developed North America, the United States, Europe, Japan, China, emerging markets, Brazil, Colombia. Its annual expense ratio is 0.09%. The category average, which is still low, is 0.40%. I just want to explain to listeners out there that being able to buy everything in kind of one bite like that would have been unthinkable. It reminds me of that scene in Willy Wonka. My kids just read the book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, when the little girl eats the piece of gum that has the entire dinner and everything in it. Yeah. It was not Veruca, was it Veruca, Veruca Salt? Or... <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, this it's is... It's not Veruca Salt. It's, um, is it Veruca Salt? The blueberry, but she turns into a but blueberry. But she turns into everything, and it's amazing. Yeah. So, and anyway, we take it for granted now. But one very liquid cut rate stock, and I believe most places don't even charge you commission for it, that holds eighty eight hundred stocks in it. That's hyper liquid, and and yes, people trade them, and yes, they're exotic leveraged ETFs out there and whatnot. But this is a huge development in the history of, of investing. I believe still that even if Jack didn't like ETF versions of Vanguard, this is a true democratizing thing. Anybody with a couple of hundred dollars can just go and buy a few shares of it. Speaking of democracy, I think it's really important that we have this in the conversation that we talk about him. He structured Vanguard as a mutual company. So it was mutually owned by all the shareholders. I wouldn't say that Ned Johnson was his arch rival at Fidelity, but Ned Johnson, who is the founder of Fidelity, is a billionaire many times over. Jack Bogle could have been a billionaire had he structured his company differently, but he truly believed that that you know it was about it was about the investor. And look, the man was not poor. You know, he had he was a millionaire for sure. But he really could have been a billionaire, and he that wasn't the way he wanted to live his life. I think of Vanguard as maybe like the biggest kibbutz in the world. The only correspondence I get from them as a customer is, well, we've now reduced the cost of your index fund uh, expense ratio from 0.12% to 0.09%. Congrats and have a good week. And we all own that together. This is not a company that throws a lot of marketing weight around. It's not. It doesn't spend on steakhouses and binges and Davos-like events. And that's become cult-like for for Bogleheads the world over. That there's nothing to be embarrassed of in in in, in thriftiness and in investing. Right. I love the Boglehead. There, you know, there's a whole community of people who are Bogleheads who are devotees, and they would go to an, an annual conference and meet with him and talk to him. I grew up in Philadelphia, Robin. We have not mentioned this yet. So Philadelphia, to us, Vanguard's the hometown team. That's Vanguard's in Valley Forge, which is right outside the city. And uh, you know, my whole family are Vanguard investors. All my money growing up was invested in Vanguard stuff. My grandmother, who's 98 years old, God bless her, she's a serious Vanguard investor. And she, every time I would meet with Jack Bogle, she would be so excited and I'd always have to tell her that she <laughs> tell him that she sent his re her regards and he would send his regards back it's very cute but um the idea of this mutual company and and of putting the shareholder first 
the hat first, the hat was really novel. That was very, very, very different mindset for Wall Street well, for it must, the money it, management it's a, industry. It's a strange thing. I mean, Schwab is publicly traded. It was a traditionally a brokerage, you know, commission-based business. I'm surprised that these other players like Schwab and Fidelity are not going more kicking and screaming into this because they have overhead. They have highly compensated active fund managers. How can they just go into a business where they're charging nothing, a half a penny for an ETF? It's, that's that's the problem. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, when we get back to the earlier part of this conversation about advice and about managing people's money, it's how do you fix a system that is already so far baked, that's already set up in a way that really is disadvantageous to the individual investor? Now, Lauren, one of the problems, and again, it is, it is in the ter- territory of wonkiness, but when you have such an ownership society that is overwhelmingly impassive, uh, not active managed products where I said it's it's be the market, don't beat the market. You literally have no choice but to own everything in the index. If it owns, you know, Philip Morris, if it owns defense contractors, uh, Facebook that has had its share of public relations and privacy turmoil um, uh, in the last several months. Uh, this causes a problem in that you see a pullback in in shareholder activism when Vanguard is effectively just saying, or, or or BlackRock and others, like, listen, we have to own everything, so it doesn't make sense for us to vote out bad management or to disagree if a company is still denying climate change. Does this cause a diffusion of responsibility when everybody just owns everything and kind of falls asleep? Well, yes, Robin. You set that me up for a very simple answer, which is yes, it does. And I think that shareholder activism in, in the era of passive investing, it, the, they don't they don't jive with each other, right? It's really hard. And you rely on these outside firms to help you vote your proxies when it comes time for proxy season to say that this company is good for the environment or bad for the environment or whatever it is. They should stop using plastic straws. Um, it's There is less incentive for money managers to be activists when they are passively investing. That is true. Uh, free skate, freestyle for you, Lauren Young, in the few minutes we have left. What would you like to talk about? I always ask people in the end, what do you think needs more attention now? What's being short shrifted? Well, I was going to ask you, Robin, what's your biggest money challenge right now? My biggest money challenge? Gosh, um, I actually think a lot about diversification. I worry if um, the United States has become you know, which has been so resurgent since the March 2009 low. Like Jack Bogle, one of his more controversial legacies was the S&P 500 is the best thing you can do, that there's really no point in diversifying. And that's not true. And if you talk to other people, they say the Wilshire 5000. I have, I have, but others are out there saying you should dedicate. I'm I'm constantly confused. My meaning of life question is what is truly the best that we can do? Is is he talking as kind of a 1975 contemporary with the S&P 500? Don't you truly want to own a piece of everything in the world at a low cost level now that it's possible? And so I think about this. I think about this as a parent. I think about the cost of college. I think about is private college not worth it anymore? Certainly it's more germane for you as someone with a 15-year-old. So I turn it back around to you. You're the guest after all. Well, I will tell you that um, having been divorced, I would say that blended families are, you know, which I think half of American families with, you know, half of divorces ending in, in marriage, um, that the household makeup of, of our country is very blended. And it is super, super complicated to figure all this out because 
You have money coming in from one side. You have coming money coming in from the other. How do you mix it? How do you match it? How do you deal with the X's? And um, I don't feel like there's been there's no great roadmap for for people in terms of blending finances. And granted, as I've said like three times already, money is super personal. So it's there's no one all in one solution anyway. But it's something that I think about a lot because I'm constantly dealing with it with my ex-husband and my current husband and the ex-wife and the current the ex ex's current wife and they're having a baby and it's just super complicated stuff and I would love for somebody to help me figure it all out. So where do you go? I mean to the extent that we are set it and forget it people right now we are devout bogleheads. You must have a very cold eye when a financial advisor comes to you or a relationship advisor. So it's interesting. We actually do have a financial advisor. Um, we don't. I would say that I don't utilize the services that are offered to us to the fullest of, of, of our ability right now, but I do hope to. I mean, we're in good shape because I have been saving since, since I started working, and that really, at the end of the day, if you're a young person listening or you know a young person, that is the difference, Robin, and I think you know that too. It's that power of compounding. If you start saving when you first get out of college, you're going to be okay, um, and you keep doing you know, it. I did not want. Rate. By the way, I did not want to hear any of that when I first got out of college. No I was like, I'm one getting a does. paycheck. I could get a a condo in Brickell Avenue in Miami. I can live. I can live the life. I can. You know, I, I was very much in demand as a as a handsome twenty something. I Lauren. can tell. And, yeah, I mean, With the mother I, who's a good cook. Yeah, and I wanted uh, to keep a capex budget to to entertain. Uh, prospective suitors and everything. And so I didn't think about it. Like when Goldman said, we have the most generous match, 10%. I was like, you and your silly 401k, go away. I'm going to a steakhouse. And now I lament it because I can look back at it in a very Catholic way and say, Do you know Gosh. that when I started my first job out of college working at Dow Jones, they gave us, gave me on a silver platter, 15% of my salary lump sum that they just dumped into the retirement plan. And, you know, so I, if I was earning what I'm earning now, that would just be an incredible thing. I mean, it was still good because it funded and created the foundation of, of you know, retirement savings that I've been able to. But it, on, at the end of the day, if there's one thing that you take away from this conversation is that Jack Bogle was very charming and he was right in terms of indexing. But also just start young and do it regularly and you'll be in great shape. No, really, how do you, you – you hear from a lot of alums at both Northwestern and, and, and Penn State. You're an active alum. Younger people who come to you seek out career advice. How do you do that to them and not sound like a harpy or you know, a person who's telling them to drink their milk and do push-ups? Well, I'm like a big sister, as you say. Um, but I, I just explain to them and I show them the numbers and I show them the charts. And, and um, it is – graphically, it's harder on, on, on the radio to see it. But it, you see – the differences at different levels if you start saving. And it's powerful to just look at, at the numbers. And and once you start doing it, you don't feel it because I have so much money sucked out of my bank account every paycheck that I don't even see it. I don't know because I just never experienced having it because it's going to this fund and that 529 and it's amazing that savings account and then some, you know, of philanthropic stuff that I don't give money away to Penn State and to other places. But um, I think I really think it's good to have a money mentor in life. And if you and like you said, I do have young people talk to me all the time, but it's people don't talk about money in, enough, Robin. And you probably know that they're more likely to talk about sex than they are about money. But it's good to ask questions. And you know what? 
Ask other people what they're making, too, because I, I know what every person who sits around me in the office earns. I think it's really important to know what you're worth and know what other people are worth and, and how you stack well, up. Well, I know what you're worth because um, a very small little-known little fact is that Rod Stewart uh, wrote a song about Lauren Young. You specifically right. look at the lyric. It goes, young hearts be free tonight. Time is on your side. How do you like that for transition? Is time on my side? Because I think we're out of time. We are out of time. But if you tell that to the people who come up to you for advice, I mean, that'd be pretty awesome. Young Hearts, Lauren Young, get it? Time is on your side? Was that tortured? I thought you were going to go with Forever Young, but I appreciate it. Forever Young. Lauren Young, thank you so much. Wealth Editor at Reuters, you are always welcome on this show. Uh, Well, I'm going to be back. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Full disclosure. Special thanks to Neil Rauch at NPR New York City. Our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to us on NPR member station WCVE 88.9 FM on the NPR One app and on iTunes at Link Full D Radio. We are no load growth at a reasonable price. Always bringing commissions down. Be the market. Don't beat the market. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.